Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message. So uh, how many of you in the room were here a few weeks ago when Dan Wilt came and spoke? He really... uh, did a number, I think. It was such a good word that he brought. Uh, And we're going to just kind of delve into this little Latin phrase, or as Adam put it last week, this little Harry Potter sounding uh, (laughs) phrase that made me laugh so hard. Uh, It's my nerd showing. Um, Lex orandi, Lex credendi, Lex vivandi. Man, I wish I was fluent in Latin. Don't you? Uh, So essentially what this means is how you pray and worship forms what you believe, which in turn uh, influences like the life that you end up living and the life that you live circles back and influences what? The way that you pray and the way that you worship. So what we're going to be doing uh, is just kind of breaking down over the next few weeks each one of those little phrases. So last week, Adam uh, started with Lex Arandi, and I'm going to be talking today about Lex Credendi, or the way that we believe. Now, that is a very large topic. Dare I say too large for a Sunday morning, right? Uh, maybe even too large for 52 Sunday mornings. Uh, So if we were to zoom in this morning to just one component of the way that we believe, that's what we're going to be doing today. So I'm not going to try to cover like everything. We're going to look at one particular thing that I feel like the Lord really laid heavily, heavily on my heart this week. So here we go. Uh, Yay. Um, I am tempted. Now, I don't know if this, this is probably a byproduct of like, my religious upbringing and also just the way that my brain works, but I am tempted to switch around Lex Credendi and Lex Orandi. So here's what I am tempted to have this phrase say. The way that I believe will form the way that I pray and worship. Does this make sense to anyone in the room? So uh, in my head, I think, well, you know, I believe that God is a healer. So I pray and ask the Lord to heal people. I believe that, you know, God is merciful. So I pray and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, I believe that God is glorious. And so that is the way that I approach him in worship. And while everything that I just said is fine, (laughs) it's good and right. Uh, Here's the problem with with what I'm saying and also where we're gonna focus on today. It's that beliefs can change, can't they? Am I making anybody nervous yet? (gasps) So I just wanna be really clear right now, I'm well aware of like the cultural waters that we're all swimming in, okay? I am not talking about dismantling your entire belief system this morning. I am not. So when I say beliefs can change, please don't read this as any commentary 
on just, you know, leaving the faith entirely. Uh, we're also not talking about deconstruction with the intent of burning the house to the ground. We are not talking about that. We are talking about the shifting of beliefs that bring us closer to Jesus and that start causing us to look more and more like him. Okay? That's our frame this morning. I was listening to a podcast this week, and they compared it this way. Uh, it's kind of like the way that children interact with their parents. I no longer relate to my mom and dad the way I did when I was three years old. That would be weird, right, for all of us. Uh, the relationship has changed, but here's the key word here. There is still a relationship, Right? And so it is with the beliefs that we carry in our hearts. They can change without having to be shipwrecked in order to do so. Uh, and I'd go so far as to say that they should. If we go back to that same example, I have small children. I love interacting with them right now. But boy, do I look forward to the day uh, when I can relate to them on new levels as they get older. You know, to the day when everybody in my home is out of diapers, for instance. I look forward to that. So what we're going to find this morning is that actually it's good and right for some beliefs to change, but we're also going to see that it's the catalyst behind the change and the results that these changes yield in our lives that ultimately are what we need to concern ourselves with. So... How many of you, at some point in your life, believed one thing, and now you no longer do? Everybody should have their hand raised. It's true. Here are my confessions. Are you ready? <laughs> when I was young, early elementary school, mm, let's say preschool just because it makes me seem less weird. Preschool to early elementary age, <laughs> somewhere around there. Uh, I wholeheartedly believed that there was this certain shadow that appeared on the wall next to my bed every night that in my mind resembled kind of like a canine-looking monster that would eat me if I fell asleep facing the wall. So I would just train myself to fall asleep looking in the opposite direction. It's absurd, isn't it? I'm happy to report I no longer believe that shadows on the wall are going to harm me in any way. I do still, though, fall asleep in that same direction, which is hilarious. I was, like, typing it this week, and I thought, oh, my, <laughs> some weird childhood things coming out in my adulthood. Okay. Um, I've always been a reader. I love to read. But in my late teens, you know, in the wisdom of my late teens <laughs> and early 20s, I believed that the only books I would ever read, in fact, the only books worth reading, were the classics. Or at the very least, what I will categorize as smart people books. Okay? I'm not necessarily even talking about nonfiction, just smart people books. And I was very, like, meh about it. 
So, but then uh, I started working, this was many years later, at our local public library. Let's give it up for all the librarians in the room. Okay. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I was around all these people who read like different things from me. And they weren't the classics, let me tell you. And then I picked up this book by an author who ex exclusively writes fiction stories set in Nantucket. Sounds high quality, doesn't it? And I loved it. <laughs> I loved it so much, and I still do. My beliefs changed. But here's the other crazy thing is now I've been looking back at my... So, okay, I was like, I'm only going to read Nantucket books from now on. Forget the classics. Uh, but I've been looking back at my little Goodreads this week, and you know what I've been, like, exclusively uh, listening to and reading is, like, weird nonfiction autobiographies about you know, ship captains. What? Where did that come from? I don't know. Beliefs change, you know? I used to believe Brussels sprouts were terrible until my in-laws made them for me the right way. And now I believe they are the perfect... Thanksgiving side dish. And it's true. It's true. Here's another one. This is going to land us right into our text for the morning. I used to believe that Paul, back when he was Saul, confusing, went around like killing the early Christians because he himself was a non-believer. I don't know why I went into that with that thought in my brain, but I believed, you know, okay, like, why would he want Jesus' followers dead? Well, he must have hated God and everything God standed for. Standed? <laughs> Stood. I used to believe I was good at public speaking. <laughs> but in fact, words are hard. In fact, Saul did believe in God. He was an upright, upstanding Jew. He knew his Torah. Uh, he went to the synagogue, he prayed, he worshipped, he lived exactly the right way. He belonged to the group of those who were looking for the Messiah to come and to come in power and to fulfill the destiny of Israel. Uh, he was looking for a Messiah to come and make sense of the pain that his people had been through for generations and generations and generations. He was not looking for a Messiah who himself knew suffering. And then along comes Jesus, who contradicts the religious leaders, declares himself the Messiah, eats with sinners, allows women to talk to him and touch him in public. Big no-no. Makes friends with tax collectors, is killed, and then his followers claim that he comes back to life, except where is he? Right? And now all of a sudden, these Jesus followers, they're out there proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God? And Saul, in his youthful zeal, in his religious upbringing, in his prayers and worship, decides he cannot let this stand because it is a slap in the face of everything that he believes. So let's pick up in Acts 9. Buckle in, guys. We're reading 20 verses. Come on, here we go. 
Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them both, men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Lovely man. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down on around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So the men with Saul, they stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they didn't see anybody. So Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days, did not eat or drink, Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. Uh, Lord, <laughs> exclaimed Ananias. <laughs> I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, like word has gotten around. He's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, this is crazy, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he didn't eat, he didn't drink yet. He was baptized. After that, he ate some food and regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus, you know, the people he came to kill, for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is indeed the son of God. Mm -hmm. I just want to share three observations from this story that I think will really help us on our journey through this lex credendi, the way we believe, when our beliefs are changing. First off, obviously this passage is about a miraculous transformation, right? Um, I haven't read it in quite some time, and... I cried a little bit, you guys. It's so good. Uh, but what was the catalyst behind Saul's beliefs 
changing so radically. To at one moment believe that the answer here is to kill and imprison these Jesus people. To on the flip side, going around to the synagogues and saying, oh, Jesus is the son of God. What was the catalyst there? I'm going to tell you the answer. The catalyst was an encounter with the risen Jesus. That was the catalyst. Up to that point, Saul was doing exactly what he thought God wanted him to do. That is very encouraging to me. That even in our wrongness, God still speaks to us. Even in our wrongness, Jesus wants us at the table. So how do we, modern day Jesus followers, encounter the risen Jesus? Well, we could have a road to Damascus moment, maybe, but that happens like once in your whole life, okay? If at all, if at all. Well, if we look back at our little Latin phrase, Lex Orandi, right? It's through prayer, it's through worship that we encounter the risen Jesus. Uh, these are the modes through which our beliefs will be formed. And this is why I say that the catalyst of changing beliefs is so important. There is a whole wide world out there that can and will shape us. Uh, we carry it in our pocket every day. Some of it is innocuous, but most of it is anything but. Uh, a question that I feel like I was led to ask the Lord this week was remind me of a time when through encounter with you, my beliefs have changed. And here's why that question is important. Because it reminds us, it gives us a baseline for knowing what that feels like. So this is just really like practical discipleship tips with Emily right now, okay? Beliefs change, and that is fine, but if we are tempted to, as the old saying goes, throw the baby out with the bathwater, it is probably not an encounter with the risen Jesus that is causing those beliefs to change. We need to know what it feels like when an encounter with Jesus causes the shift. So I know that there may be some pushback here. Let me expound a bit. Uh, while I was working on kind of like fleshing out this point, I just kept hearing that, that vineyard distinctive that we have, the main and the plain. I don't know if anybody has heard that before, um, but here it is. We let the main and the plain things from scripture chart the course. Earlier this year, back in January, uh, we remodeled the bathroom in our house. I'm not trying to give you flashbacks, Justin. It's fine. Uh, we remodeled the, <laughs> Justin remodeled the bathroom in our house. Um, but I remember once, once it had been stripped down, demoed down to the very studs, I remember standing in that room and thinking, well, this is different. This is still a bathroom, but man, it could be anything, right? And when they went to rebuild it, we kept the main things and the plain things in mind. It was still a bathroom. So we had things in there like a shower, a sink, a toilet. Okay, we put those things back in there. And we also didn't decide to do anything wacky. And I'm not talking about like painting it lime green, although we didn't paint it lime green. But I'm not talking about that kind of wackiness. I'm talking like we didn't say to ourselves, you know, 
What would be great in this bathroom is an oven. Let's put an oven in. If I go to your house and I say, may I use the restroom, please? And you're like, sure. And I go in there and I'm sitting down. I'm like, there's an oven next to me. I'm going to come out with some questions for you. Because that's wacky. Okay? It's not plain as to why there would be an oven in a bathroom. And so it can be with the changing or shifting of beliefs. Take them down to the studs. Fine. But keep the main things and the plain things firmly in your grasp. Better yet... You're probably being invited by the Lord to let him help you keep that grasp. All right, second. The community of believers in Damascus, the very people that Saul had come to kill or lead back to Jerusalem in chains, were the ones that God used to heal Saul and to seal what the Holy Spirit was doing in his life. Let's specifically think about Ananias' role in this story. He's my favorite part in this story, by the way. The Lord appears to him in a vision. They have conversations. So at some level, Ananias is open and aware of like the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is, is doing and saying around him. And not just that, but the Lord asked him to go do something that's probably very scary. Right? Oh, go, go lay your hands on the man who wants you dead who came here with a permission slip to imprison you. I promise you at some level, Ananias thought, you know, it would be better for everyone if Saul were to just stay blind. And it wasn't Ananias' belief that moved him forward to Saul. It was encountering God and hearing his call. Even when that call ran counter to his belief, through conversation with God, the Lord corrects him, then he's moved forward to action. You might say, well, it's a lot of conjecture there, Emily, but I don't think so, and here's why. We can see it in the way that Ananias addresses Saul. What does he call him? Brother. What? He calls him Brother Saul. I think that is one of the most beautiful parts of this whole story. And I really felt strongly this week that the Lord is extending like an Ananias-style invitation to someone or some people in the room. Today, perhaps you've been resisting going to someone that the Lord has laid on your heart. Maybe it even feels like self-preservation in a way. Um, And the invitation is for you to call that person brother or sister, and to speak into what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. So, all right, what does that mean for us? Well, remember, uh, we cannot live our faith in solitary confinement. If our beliefs cause us to live a life of exclusion, we've lost the plot completely. The good news of the kingdom of heaven has always been playing out in the context of community. So we are allowing our prayer and worship together to shape what we together, and I'm talking Vineyard Campbellsville, believe and then go out and live daily in our community. Okay, last thing. What did Paul's change of beliefs 
result in. Besides, he stopped trying to kill people. (laughs) What did Paul's uh, change of beliefs result in? Well, it resulted in a new way of living his life. Can we pull up um, verse 18 again? 18 through 20. Instantly, something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. He's all in at this point. Afterward, he ate some food, regained his strength. And I really love this part. He stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And he immediately began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying... He is indeed the son of God. Or in other words, I was wrong. It's not that he had been called to completely dismantle all of his beliefs or to even leave his beliefs entirely. The call for him was uh, in accepting Jesus as the fulfillment of what he already believed. So what this looked like in everyday life is the same as when anyone in scriptures encounters Jesus or one of us today. He just couldn't stop talking about it, right? He couldn't stop talking about it. Right theology or belief on our part, absent from the going and doing of that right theology is powerless. It's useless. It means nothing. The good news of the kingdom of God, and I equate that with the belief that Jesus is who he said he is, it demands action on our part. And that gets us in to the lex vivendi portion of this little Latin phrase, right? It demands action on our our part. It forms the way that we live. So just to close out today, I'm going to tell you my own story. Just a little snippet, a little little snippet, if you will. Uh, If you live any amount of life... Uh, you're going to look back on like seasons or there's maybe an event that happened and you say like, yeah, that was the thing that formed me. Or that was one of the main things that formed me. So um, I've talked about this before, but in 2018, I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, that's a very scary season to go through. I know that there are people in this very room who know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been through it yourself. So I'm four years past it, and I would like to tell you what it has birthed. Lex or Rondi, the way that I interact with God fundamentally changed. I pray differently. I worship differently. I hear him differently. Uh, Lex Credendi, I slowly began to shift away from God is a healer for others to God can heal me to I am worth being healed because God loves me. Yeah. Not only that, but I learned how to receive the love and care of the community around me. The church did such an excellent job of ministering to me and my family during that time. Lex Vivendi. Out of that shift of belief, 
my entire life began to order itself differently because I realized if I am worth ministering to because God loves me, then so are you and 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 and every single person in this room. I used to shy away from people going through grief or experiencing loss. It's uncomfortable. It still is. But I don't want to shy away from it anymore. I used to also keep my own cards close to my chest. And I realized uh, that living a life more open to others in need means living a life more open to my own need. It was also in the fallout from all that that Adam first asked me to preach, which was a great surprise to me and everyone else because I had never said anything about it, nor had it ever been a thought in my brain. Ever. But I can look back now and see that during that season, the Lord was actually empowering me for the new kind of life that I would be living from then on out. Lex Vivendi. I don't want to steal anyone's thunder for next week, but there we go. All right, band, you can come up. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.